you have your Bibles with you this morning, I invite you to turn to James chapter 3. We're going to look at verses 13 through 18. James chapter 3, 13 through 18. Each year, uh, when we go on our junior-senior beach retreat, we always go to church on the beach, and that's actually a church service on the beach. And this year was, was no different. We went to church on the beach, uh, but the sermon only lasted 20 minutes. And we're looking around at each other going like, is that it? I mean, we're not used to that. Matter of fact, one of our adults who will remain nameless, but whose initials are Davy Bannister, <laughs> said, that's a good Scott Davis introduction right there. <laughs> so we got about 20 minutes or so uh, to get a good Scott Davis introduction in. I was talking to Glenn Tucker yesterday and said, Glenn, I've got to pack about a 50-minute sermon into 20 minutes. And he's like, good, good, do it. Is Glenn here? Uh, didn't work the first service, just to let you know. So, But would you uh, stand with me as we read together James chapter 3? And, and, and by the way, uh, um, Scott hadn't been able to preach in a couple weeks, so next week, pack a lunch, okay? <laughs> and at the end of this service, uh, at the close, uh, please remain where you are as the graduates uh, process out. Um, at the end of the service. Okay, here we go. Uh, James chapter 3, 13 through 18. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but earthly and spiritual and demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Let's pray together. Father, in these remaining moments that we have together this morning, I pray that you will be our guide that you, Father, would teach us truth. I pray, Lord, that you would help me say the things that will honor the name of the Lord Jesus and give us encouragement and instruct us in the ways that we should live. Lord, to you be all praise and to you be all glory, for you are the only one worthy of our praise. And we pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. You may be seated. Today is a very special day as we celebrate the accomplishments of these graduates that are here, and I want to be able to offer something of encouragement and of value to them as they leave uh, the safety of their, their homes, the safety and the familiarity of their schools and, and this church. Uh, you have been sheltered these 18 years in an environment that, that loves Jesus and that exalts his name in your families and, and here at this place. And uh, I want to be able to offer you some encouragement as, as you get out from under that shelter that will help you uh, shine the light of the Lord Jesus. You guys mean a lot to me and Molly. Uh, the blessing that you have been 
in our life will, will always be remembered. And we're very thankful for your leadership and your love and your participation uh, here at, at Pitts Baptist Church. So what is it that, that we can gain today from this passage of Scripture that will help us and encourage us? Well, the passage of Scripture today sets out and marks out uh, a way in which we should live and then a way that we should avoid. It's very apparent. It's, it's, it's very distinct here in the Scriptures. And the way to live, of course, is the way unto God's wisdom and live a life that's patterned after the things of God. And, of course, the way to avoid is a life that is patterned af- after the, the, the worldly wisdom and what it has to offer. But before we get into that passage of Scripture, I think there's two truths that we need to unpack that will help us in this passage of Scripture. It will help us interpret. It will help us see the passage of Scripture in a way that it brings God glory and encourages us. And not only do these two truths do that, but I think it will help us in the future as we read the Bible with these two truths in mind. You see, our joy and experience with God is at stake. Our satisfaction in this life is at stake by the way we treat these two truths. The more we accept these two truths, the more joy and the more satisfaction in this life we will experience. But if we reject these two truths, we're setting ourselves up for a life of instability, a life of strife, and a life of anguish, and all the things that accompany worldly wisdom that will ultimately one day end in in destruction. And so I want us to to look at that. That's one point of the message. And then the second point of the message is uh, uh, we're going to discover the origins uh, and the characteristics and results of worldly wisdom versus godly wisdom. And so that's where I want to go today. First of all, though, let's take a look at the two truths. So what are are the two truths that govern the way that we read and interpret this passage of Scripture? The first is this, is that God is for God. God is for God. God is for His name. God is for the glory of His renown. That's the first point. And then the second point is that God is the creator of all things, and He has a design for the way things should work. He has a design for the way we should live. He set his his path for us from the very beginning. He has a design. He knows what will make things work. He knows what will satisfy us. He knows what will ultimately bring us joy. So that is something that I want us to to look at and unpack today as we uh, get into this scripture. The other day, uh, Jay uh, was out in our neighborhood and this cat was following him around. And um, he thought, well, I know where this cat lives, and so I'm going to take this cat back home. And so he goes and uh, has the cat in his hand. He knocks on the door, and nobody comes to the door. And as he's getting ready to leave, he notices one of these little pet doors. You know the little pet doors on the side of the house? And he thought, hey, that's a pretty good idea. So I want to open that door and shove that cat right in there. (laughs) 
So he opens that little pet door and you know, the cat goes in and then the cat comes right back out. And Jay's like, well, I don't know what to do now, but if you fail one time, try again. So he opens that door and about the time as he's ready to put that cat in, the owner of the house comes out and says, what are you doing? And Jay looks and his response was, I'm homeschooled. <laughs> I'm just homeschooled, that's all, that's all I know. And that was his response, you know, to what are you doing? You know, what are we doing? What are we doing in light of the truth that God is for God? What are we doing with the, the theological truth that not only is God for God, but he has designed things in such a way they should work that will ultimately bring glory to his name? So let's unpack that for a second. The first statement that God is for God sometimes is just really hard to swallow. It, it stings a little bit when, when this reality comes to us because it really means that God, not us, is uppermost in his own affection. God is uppermost in his affection. Yes, God is about saving people. The passages of Scripture are full of, 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 of words that say God wants to bless us, God wants to encourage us, and God wants to show us mercy and, and give us forgiveness. But yet there's an undercurrent under all of this that says God is for God. You see, we like to think on one hand that this is all about us, that, that we are the point of it all. And this is the good news that I want to offer today is that it releases us from us being the point in any situation to know that God is for God. And all of this is for his good and for his glory. But the person who is most miserable in life going forward is the person that thinks that this is all about him and that God just simply exists to make him happy. And in doing so, it makes God look good. Where is that in the Bible? Where is that in the holy words of Scripture? Yes, God is for us. If God is for us, who can be against us? But God is not for us because we're awesome. God is not for us because we are great. God is for us because He's awesome. God is for us because He is great. And He wants to show off Himself and bring glory to His name. And as a result, we get to follow in the wake of His blessing. We get to follow in the wake of His love because God is love. We get to follow in the wake of his holiness because he is holy. We get to follow in the wake of his wisdom because he is wise above all else. Amen. We get to, to, to have the, the, the blessing of God being for God and that he's designed things the way that they should work. That will bring us joy. That will bring us satisfaction. Church, graduates, that is great news. That is great news, because when we try to do it all on our own, when we try to think, make things about us and about ourselves, we will ultimately end up following the world's wisdom and never, ever, ever be satisfied. Matt Chandler 
says that there are literally hundreds of passages of scriptures that validate this point that God is for God. For example, Isaiah 43 states that God created us for his glory. Isaiah 49 states that God called Israel for his glory. Psalm 106 states that God rescued Israel for his glory. Psalm 8.1 says that God set his glory above the heavens. You see the point? You see the snowball getting bigger and bigger and bigger that God is for God and that God is for his glory? Psalm 79.9 says, Help us, O God, of our salvation for the glory of your name. Deliver us and atone for our sins for your name's sake. But I believe the passage of Scripture that most defines this is one of the most uh, popular passages in all of Scripture, and it's Psalm 23. You know it. We all know it. We've we've learned it our whole life. So let's just take a a look at a few sentences here and, and see what it says. It says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness. Okay, let's stop right there just for a second. It really seems at this point that God's just really into us, right? It really seems like this right here makes it sound like we're the point, right? I mean, he's, he's leading us beside still waters. He, he's giving us green pastures, and he's restoring our soul, and he's making us walk in paths of righteousness. But what's the next phrase? For his name's sake. There's an undercurrent to all those things. There's an undercurrent in, 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 in God sending Jesus Christ to die for our sins. There's an undercurrent uh, uh, in the, the fact that God wants to bless us. There's an undercurrent uh, that, that, that God wants to give us and show us mercy. And that undercurrent is that God is for God. And he wants to make his name great. And he has made his name great by giving us salvation when we did not deserve it. He does all of these things because he's great. He's awesome. And if we live in that reality, we'll get to experience abundant blessing that is not temporal but everlasting. So, what is it, why is it important to know that God is for God and that he's uppermost in his affections? It's because it releases us from being the point. I've made mention of that before. A lot of the times, husbands, when we go home from work, we, sometimes we like to feel like we're the point, you know? Or, or it, when, we're, when we're in a group of people, you know, we like to feel like we're the point, that it's about us. It's about our happiness, right? But... Knowing and understanding these two truths release us from that and it gives us the freedom to love and serve and do the things that God has called us to do freely and in doing so get to enjoy the benefits of knowing him very intimately and passionately knowing that he is preeminent in all things in our life. There's not a... A better example to me, anyway, in all of Scripture that's, that's, that's found uh, about someone who doesn't make themselves the point as the author of this book, James. 
You look at verse 1, you turn over a couple pages in your Bible. Chapter 1, verse 1 says this, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what is it about that that says that James is not the point? Well, no one understand this, that James is the half-brother of the Lord Jesus. I mean, can you imagine that? James is the half-brother of the Lord Jesus, growing up in the same house with the Messiah, growing up in the same house as the one who never lied, never sinned, never did anything wrong. Matter of fact, you might could hear James saying, Mom, you know, Jesus lied about spilling his milk, or Jesus lied about making his bed, or whatever, and Mary Mary's like, uh, no, James, uh, Jesus is God. He's the Messiah. He doesn't do anything wrong, you know. And you could see some resentment being built up in James. And matter of fact, later on in the life of Jesus, James and his brothers and sisters, they got together and said, hey, we're going to take Jesus and we're going to throw him off a cliff, right? But then, because, not because James was great, but because Jesus was great, died on the cross, resurrected, and appeared to James, not because he was good and great and awesome, but because God is good and great and awesome, and he is about to exalt his name. He comes to James. James is converted, and when James is converted, he becomes the leader of the church in uh, Jerusalem, and not only does he become the leader of the church in Jerusalem, he oversees the Jerusalem council, which is a, a pretty big deal, right? And then when Peter and Paul have important or significant things that happen in their life, uh, they feel it necessary sometimes to go tell James. And so here we see James, instead of saying, James, the half-brother of the Lord Jesus Christ, praise be to me, he says, James, a servant of the Messiah, of the King of Kings, it's not about me. It never will be about me. It's always and always will be about the Lord Jesus. Secondly, not only is God for God, but he has designed things to work in such a way that brings himself glory. But again, we get to fall in the wake of that blessing. Uh, listen to Colossians 1, 16 through 18. It says, For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. You see, because God is for God and he is uppermost in his own affection, it frees us to live in such a way that will not only honor and bless him, but we get to again just soak up his blessing, soak up his joy, and soak up his satisfaction. But so many times, graduates, don't let this happen. Friends in this place, brothers and sisters, don't let this happen. Seek the ways of the world by, by seeking things that bring temporary joy. Try to seek things that bring satisfaction for a season, but after that, it, it just goes and fades away. C.S. Lewis says it like this. He says, And yet the harsh truth is that no pleasure or beauty we have yet found in this world can bring our hearts final satisfaction. In fact, worldly pleasure and beauty only rip wider this inconsolable secret inside of us. 
Lewis goes on to say that the sun rises, the sunsets, the new music, the great films, the wholesome jokes with friends, the long vacations on the beach, the Easter dinners with family, the passionate kisses from a spouse, the thrill of our hard work praised. All of these things naturally attract us, but they are never enough to fill us. We mishandle this longing, he says. We inevitably make the channel of our pleasure the object of our pleasure. We make idols that break our hearts and undermine our joy. He says we spend our lives trying to clamp down on the elusive object of our pleasure one after the other, not realizing this graveyard of idols is killing the one thing we so desperately want. Our quest for joy grow more and more diluted and delusional. We imagine if we have enough friends, have enough praise, have enough music, have enough sex, those pleasures will satisfy this ache. They don't and they never will. In other words, if I find myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Yes, and of his cavernous desire, earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to, to suggest the real thing. How much time do we spend chasing dead idols? There's a way in which we should walk. There's a way in which we should go. We should walk in the wisdom of God. We should walk and, uh, uh, and swim behind the boat of his love and of his mercy and of his grace that he wants to lavish and pour on us. But so many times we get out of that wake and we get over into the other wake of the world that says, no, go for the temporary. Go for that that satisfies uh, our passions and desires. And, and, and we search after idol after idol to bring us pleasure. But Psalm 37, 4 says, delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. So, those are the two truths. The passage of scripture now. So what does it mean when it says that worldly wisdom is earthly? Because this is the origin of worldly wisdom, and we want to make sure this is what we avoid, okay? So that we can, can contrast that with the, the ways of God. So what does it mean? It means this, is that it comes from something that is fading. Wisdom from the world is fading because it's earthly. It's temporary. It's passing away. It will not last. It is from something that will not last because the earth as we know it is passing away. Isaiah 48 makes this clear. 40 verse 8 says, The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. That's the difference between the two wisdoms. We seek something that will last forever, or we, we seek pleasure that will only last for a short season. You know, uh, back in my more romantic days, when I actually bought Molly flowers, I should get back in that habit. Husbands, we should get back in that habit, right, wives? Get back in the habit of buying your wife flowers. I would buy a, a bouquet of roses. I didn't hear a whole lot of amens on that, wives. I'm trying to help you out, okay? Uh, so... Um, 
but I, I would buy maybe a dozen roses and I would give them to Molly on a certain occasion or whatever and put, she would put them in water and then after they stopped taking water, uh, petals would start falling off and leaves would start wilting and things like this and she would take them out of the vase and she'd put a string around them and she would hang them upside down in hopes to, you know, to hold on to them for a, a little while longer and, 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 and before all of a sudden, you know, petals are still falling off and, you know, it just doesn't have the same kind of effect as a fresh set of roses. I mean, how many of you eyes would want to get dead roses after dead roses after dead roses? I don't, I don't think you would want that, right? Some of you are just like, I just want roses. I mean, you know, I don't care if they're dead or fresh. <laughs> but what brought more joy was more fresh roses. But eventually, what would happen to those roses? They would die. And then what would bring more joy? Fresh roses. You see the pattern? And I'm wondering if we have that same kind of pattern in our life where we seek a, a temporary satisfaction and, and for a while it brings joy and then it fades away. And then we move on to the next thing and it brings joy for a little while and then it fades away. And then we move on to the next thing and then for a little while it fades away. Some of us will go through life like this, sadly, and have a bouquet of flowers on their day of judgment that they put at the feet of Christ. A decayed bouquet of flowers, so to speak. And you'll say something like, well, God, I, I sure was popular. I chased, I chased that worldly dream of being popular. Well, God, I sure made a, a ton of money. I chased that, that, the American dream, God. You know, God, I was, I was really good in my hobby. I, I, I did everything that I could. I sacrificed all my time to support my hobby. So, so here it is, God. Here's my bouquet of flowers. James chapter 5 helps us out with what will happen with such an offering. He says, come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidenced against you and you, it will eat your flesh like fire. Don't chase after things that will die. Worldly wisdom is also natural, meaning that it is opposed to anything spiritual. It's limited in nature and therefore cannot respond to the things of God. The things of God are not welcomed in his life. And when confronted with godly wisdom, he rejects it based on his feelings because he is the point. When we make ourselves the point, we are saying, I'm falling in line with the wisdom of the world. You know, we didn't have to watch a whole lot of TV this past week. Or we didn't have to be on Facebook a long time this week or Twitter or whatever it is you guys do to see this come to, to, to fruition and, and play out before our very eyes. You know, I, I, I really don't care how many operations that Bruce Jenner has. I really don't care how many hormone pills he takes because one day he's going to stand before God Almighty as a man and give an account for 
his life. And his words may be something like, well, you know, God, I was just following my feelings. I was just doing what made me feel good. But listen, I'm in the boat with everybody else that we should not be too quick to judge. Because I wonder how many decisions I make based on how I feel. Let's get behind the the boat that God is sailing for us, the boat that is of his wisdom, the, the boat that will give us his blessing, the wisdom of God. Well, ultimately, the wisdom of the world is demonic. Satan himself is the mastermind of such wisdom. He's the one that tempts you to lie to yourself and say all this is for God and God is for himself and God is for his glory. He's the one saying serve yourself, serve your interest, uh, which may seem harmless in the beginning, but turn into a world of destruction and chaos. John 10, 10, we know it says the thief, the enemy, Satan has come to kill. He's come to steal and he's come to destroy. He is not for us in any way, shape or form. He may seem that way at first, but ultimately he is for our destruction. That's where earthly wisdom, that's where worldly wisdom comes from. And then worldly wisdom has its characteristics. You see them listed in the scripture, the characteristics of of jealousy and of selfish ambition and of boasting. These are the things that are produced when one seeks after worldly wisdom. You see, that comes when we want to exalt self and make self more important than what we really are. When we are the point in our world, when we make everything about us What happens is when these expectations are not met that we might have on a spouse or a friend or a co-worker, when these expectations are not met, you know what happens? We become jealous. We become angry. We become ambitious to, to bring self up to the top. This is a characteristic and a, and a fruit, so to speak, of, of worldly wisdom. But William Barclay has a word of warning for us. He says this. He says, you can tell what a man's relationship with God is like by looking at his relationship with other people. If a man is at variance or at odds with his fellow man, and if he is quarrelsome, competitive, argumentative, and a troublemaking creature, but he may be a diligent churchgoer, or he may even be a church office bearer, this man is not a man of God. A word of warning goes exactly opposite against what Paul teaches in Philippians chapter 2, verse 3. He says, let nothing be done from selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. That's the wisdom of God. And then the results of worldly wisdom are obvious. If one continues to make decisions that are just birthed out of worldly wisdom, they can expect nothing more but confusion, disorder, and death. That's what James 1.18 says. He's double-minded. He's a man that's unstable in all his ways. So, worldly wisdom, godly wisdom. What does godly wisdom look like in, in our few moments remaining together? First, godly wisdom is from above. We see that in the passage of Scripture, that godly wisdom is from above. It's, it's, it's totally different, has a totally different origin, has a totally different beginning, okay? 1 Corinthians 2, 6 and 7 say it like this. 
Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God declared before the ages. You see, this wisdom of God is centered in Christ and includes all God's plans for the history of salvation for before the ages to an unending future in eternity. The wisdom is manifested then and God's Son is given power by the Holy Spirit and is demonstrated in God's Word. So there is a place where this wisdom has originated and it's a place where we can go and get it. It's found in the words of Scripture. Psalm, uh, uh, Proverbs 2, verses 1 through 5 says, My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commands within you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding, yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as a hidden treasure, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and you will find the knowledge of God. It is found within the pages of Scripture. It's found within the pages of the gift that this church has given you guys today and has been given you for 18 years in teaching and loving and admonishing you to study and know the Word of God. It's also found through prayer, James 1.5. If anyone lacks wisdom, let him pray for it, and God will give it to him. But there's a place where you can go and get it. One of the places that I love most is at the beach, Right? We all love to go to the beach, most of us. I like to get my chair, you know, get some sunshine, get my chair at the edge of the water and let that water lap up over my feet. Some of you are probably getting a visual now of that and you're like, ooh, please move on. <laughs> Don't want to have that image in my mind. But I, I, I love that. I mean, I love sitting at the edge of the water and, and seeing the ocean and hearing the waves crash and I mean, even eating good seafood, right? Amen? I mean, just I, I, love, I love those things, but I can't experience those things unless I go to the place where it is that I can experience those things. The wisdom of God is found. Go to the place where it is found. It's not of this world, but it's from above. Quickly, some characteristics of godly wisdom. It's pure. It indicates holiness. God above all is holy, and his wisdom is pure, free from any spot or blemish. And so we are called to be holy, to purify our hearts. God's wisdom, therefore, leads us to a life of purity. And then God's wisdom is also full of mercy. It allows us to see how much mercy has been extended to us, and it encourages us to extend that same kind of mercy and forgiveness and compassion to others. That kind of wisdom is not found following the boat of worldly wisdom. It is only found in experiencing and knowing Christ in a relationship, an intimate, passionate relationship, and following his way of living. And then God's wisdom is open to reason. God's wisdom is the source of reason. It is what makes us moldable. It makes us pliable. It makes us ready to receive instruction. In other words, it gives us a willing and teachable spirit. Proverbs 8 Verses eight, Proverbs 9, I mean, verses 8 and 9 say, Do not reprove a scoffer or he will hate you. 
Reprove a wise man, and he will love you. Give instruction to a wise man, and he will still be wiser. Teach a righteous man, and he will increase in learning. How do you respond when you're confronted with something that you know that you're doing is wrong? The wisdom of God says, be teachable, be moldable, be pliable. Because it's not about you. It's not about your comfort. It's about how I want to make you more into the image of Jesus Christ. But to me, I guess the thing that I, I really like about this passage, that, that it's a, a characteristic and a result of, of godly wisdom, is peace. It's peace. Students, adults, all of us, we're going to experience difficulties in life. We're going to go through troubles. We're going to go through trials. We're going to go through heartaches. But through it all, if we are following the way of God and his wisdom, we can have peace in all circumstances. This is what uh, the children taught us last week at their worship service. They, they mentioned the hymn writer Horatio Spafford, who wrote the song, It Is Well With My Soul lost his daughters in a horrific sea accident. Only his wife was saved. And as he is traveling over to meet his wife, about at the place where he gets uh, uh, in his journey, where the ship went down, where he lost his daughters, he wrote these words. When peace, like a river, attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well. It is well with my soul. And though Satan should buffet and though trials should come, let, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless and state and he has shed his own blood. For my soul. And probably, probably the verse of, of, of any hymn that I love the most is this one. My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin not in part, but the whole is nailed to a cross. And I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh my soul. And Lord, haste the day when my faith shall be sight, the clouds be rolled back as the scroll, the trump shall resound, and the Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. That's the kind of peace I want you to have. That's the kind of peace your moms and dads want you to have. That's the kind of peace this church wants you to have. But above all, that's the peace that your creator, that your savior, the one that died for you wants you to have. So is it well with our soul this morning? Do you have the peace of knowing 
God? Do you have that peace that that you know that you're on the right road? I pray that you don't leave this place this morning knowing anything different. Pastor Scott's going to be here and he would love to talk with you about how to give your life to Christ and having the peace of God and being able to follow the wisdom of, of, of himself. But you may be here and you say, I belong to the Lord Jesus, I'm saved, but I am on a road that is not following his wisdom. And you want to come and you want to, to get that right again. This altar's here for you. Or you may want to come this morning and just grab one of these graduates and, or just pray from where you are and, and, and just say, I, I want you to have and know that kind of peace always. I want you to walk in the ways of God always. And just dedicate that to the Lord. This invitation, whatever the Lord's leading you to do, I pray, God, uh, that... Uh, that you would be obedient uh, to whatever the Lord's asking you to do. Pastor, you come, and let's have our time of invitation.